Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. I'm here with David Cleary, Director of Global Agriculture for the Nature Conservancy. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And um, tell us a little bit about what your role entails. Sure. Um, basically, three things. Um, nature, we, we have agriculture programs in about 40 countries around the world. So my first and most important job is to support those programs, to help them grow their capacity, um, help fundraise for them, um, and also to have them sort of more or less flying information around a shared definition of what sustainability in agriculture means. Um, I represent the organization and sort of voice our opinions on you know uh, topics relevant to agriculture agriculture. That's one of the main reason why I'm here at this particular event. Um, I also help to manage some of the global level relationships relevant uh, to our agricultural work in both the private and the public sector. So large agribusiness companies that operate on a global scale, um, but also uh, organizations like the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, the Gates Foundation, you know, uh, institutions that have an important role to play uh, within the global ag space that we'd like to try and have conversations with and occasionally try to influence. So you said that the Nature Conservancy has agriculture programs in how many countries? Around about 30. Okay. So what goes on at the country level? What does what do your programs do? Uh, well, um, we have three areas of focus. Um, one is uh, trying to reduce and eliminate uh, deforestation and habitat conversion from supply chains. Uh, we also have a soil program trying to uh, avoid uh, soil erosion, but also uh, manage soils and increase soil health. Uh, and the third area of focus is around water, um, water conservation and water quality. So dealing with agriculture so that it has the least possible impact and the most efficient possible use of, of water around the world. Great. That sounds like very important work, really. Very important and very challenging sometimes. Yeah. And you've spent a lot of your career, you've been at the Nature Conservancy yeah. a pretty long time, right? It wasn't deliberate, but that's how uh -huh. it's turned out, yeah. And you, you've spent a lot of your career there uh, focused on Brazil, is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Brazil so, and Latin America more broadly. Okay. So what are some of the um, biggest challenges there? I mean, I can guess... Yeah. One of them. Well, I mean, <laughs> Brazil's a big country, so wherever you are, it's you know the challenges are slightly different. Um, I think the biggest challenge that I dealt with at the time I was living there was around deforestation in commodity supply chains, um, especially in the soy and the beef industry. Um, we've actually been very successful over the last 10, 15 years in reducing deforestation in the Amazon way below where it used to be. Um, I'd say you have an increasing problem now um, in various parts of Brazil with water use. Um, you know, we've already been able to see some changes in um, rainfall patterns um, uh, by you know, probably linked to climate change. Um, we've also, I think, in different parts of Brazil, got issues around soil loss and uh, and soil health. So Brazil's an extremely efficient um, agricultural producer. It's a massive supplier of agricultural commodities to the global market. But in some ways, that that grain complex that they, an oilseed complex that they that drives that, you know, it's, it's got some vulnerabilities on the soil and the waterfront. And is most of the erosion there related to? like large quantities of rainfall and are are um are a lot of the farmers there using no till 
No-till is really, um, you know, really common in, in, in Brazil. Okay. Um, it's sort of, you know, taken, it's been taken up like wildfire, actually, over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, most of the, you know, Brazil's a tropical climate, so, you, you know, you do have, um, you know, quite, quite violent rain. Um, that's, you know, that's just part of the, you know, part of the natural s- cycle there. Um, but I think, you know, what's happened um, is that quite a lot of habitat has been cleared um, in recent years to be able to expand um, the agricultural, you know, the planted area there. Um, and quite often that's um, loosened root structures and it's, you know, it's, it's made soil, soil erosion um, a problem in some places. Yeah. So I'm sure there's a massive amount of erosion right after the forests are cleared, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, and you can see it very, um, very obviously on, on the landscape. Um, it's important to um, just to flag, though, that actually most of the cropland area in Brazil, um, it's, it's expanded over grasslands rather than forests. Um, you know, the Amazon's much more, you know, by far the most famous part of Brazil outside Brazil. But the real engine of agricultural growth in, in Brazil has been actually more the Cerrado, um, which is a mixed sort of savanna woodland type biome. Um, so it's rather similar to the US, actually, that, you know, the history of US agriculture is it, it expanded much more over grasslands than, than it did in forest er- forested areas. And that's actually true of Brazil, too. Okay. Is that actually a, a bigger environmental problem than the Rainforest deforestation? Well, it depends what lens you want to view it through. I mean, if you're worried about biodiversity, then forests are more of a problem because they have much higher levels of, of biodiversity. Um, if you're worried about um, climate change, probably you're going to be more worried about forests as well because when you burn a forest, it releases more carbon than if you're burning savannas. Um, but at the same time, you know, we worry about all um, ecosystems, not just about forests. Um, the Sahara and grasslands generally. I mean, you know, the U.S. also. Um, you know, they're a really important ecosystem. Um, they've historically been incredibly important to um, to human life. Um, you know, both in agricultural terms and, and for ranging and, and livestock. Um, so it's really important, um, you know, around the world that rangelands and grasslands are, are kept in a good state. So, you know, that's, that's always going to be a, a focus of our work. This episode was recorded in May 2019 at our one conference in Lexington, Kentucky. And it was a great conversation with David Cleary. But shortly after that, things went awry in the Amazon rainforest. And there were thousands and thousands of fires this summer. So um, David was nice enough to um, get on the phone with us today and give us a little update about where we are, how much damage was done, and um, what's the future look like for the Amazon Thank you, David. Um, well, yes, you're right. Things have gone awry. And the background to that is that the Brazilian government um, essentially signaled to the farming and ranching um, sectors in the Amazon that they weren't going to spend a huge amount of time or effort chasing down people who uh, didn't have uh, the requisite deforestation permits to clear land. Um, so, what we've been able to verify so far is an uptick, um, quite a strong uptick in fire activity. 
uh, it's important you understand what we know and what we don't know. What we do know is there's a lot more fire activity in the Amazon. What we don't know is the size of the land areas that those fires are clearing. Um, we don't know that because the smoke and the clouds of the uh, this time of year make it very difficult for the for us to get reliable satellite satellite data. That won't happen until the end of the year, and at the end of the year, um, we'll know what the deforestation um, f figures are. Now, I know the figures that you've seen in the media are, are, are quite dramatic. It definitely has been a, a significant increase in fire activity, um, but a lot of things. There's a lot of other factors in the mix as well. I mean, if the rains come early, that dampens it down. Um, there's, it's not necessarily true that a large increase in fire activity in the Amazon is going to in, in result in that level of increase in deforestation. It could be more, could be less. We won't know until the end of the year. What I think we can say is that even with the quite strong uptick in the, uh, of deforestation in the Amazon, um, it will be bad in comparison with last year, um, but it's still going to be at a level that historically is not as bad as it was about 10 years ago. So it's bad news, but it's not devastating news. What do you see for um, the remainder of President Bolsonaro's term? Do you expect that... Um this is going to be an ongoing thing year after year. Will, will it accelerate? Um, I know that, you know, conversations <laughs> or messages from the G7 to him didn't work very well this summer. How, how can we engage with Brazil to slow this down? Well, I think it's it's pretty interesting what happened because I think the strong international reaction to the fires in the Amazon really put the Brazilian government on the back foot. It was it was very clear um, you know, that the uh, they weren't expecting such a strong reaction, um, and it wasn't just the environmental NGOs and the green pieces of this world that were very critical. A lot of the companies that invest in Brazil and are active in the agricultural sector were also critical. Um, Brazil depends upon those companies and the agribusiness sector in general is an incredibly important and thriving part of its economy. So to the extent that Brazil makes life more difficult for its big agribusiness sector and because it's an exporting economy, an agricultural commodity exporting economy, it could do without the sort of damage to its image that, 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 that the Amazon fires did. I think the government understands that better now. There's actually parts of the Brazilian government that always understood that very well. The agriculture ministry, for example, is run by an extremely competent woman um, who was very active in saying that, no, no, this is not, this is not the way for us to be going. Um, so I think it did point to the, the, the sort of diversity of, of opinion, even within the Brazilian government. The fact there's different power centers within it. Um, and I'd be quite optimistic that uh, next year, perhaps learning a little bit from this experience, um, we'll find um, you know, governments uh, and the private sector and the farmers um, making more of an effort to combat uh, the damage that was done, that was clearly done this year. Well, that sounds good. I, I hope that we can find a good way to go forward and, mm -hmm. um, and not lose all the progress that we made over the last um, decade or more. And at this point, we'll rejoin our previous interview in which you talk about how all that progress was made. So thanks for joining us again today, David. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. You mentioned that there's been a lot of progress in reducing deforestation in the Amazon. 
what were some of the things that were successful there? Um, it, both private and public initiatives played a role. So on the public side, uh, you have actually a very good um, regulatory framework for agriculture. Um, farmers in the Amazon have to keep 80% of their uh, land holding in native vegetation. Um, so that's already you know, a good thing, you know, a high bar to be able to, to work from. Um, the uh, government also uh, recognized deforestation as a problem and it had targeted strategies to crack down on it um, where, the, where in, in the bits of the Amazon that they could see that deforestation was increasing. Technology really improved um, over the last 20 years to the point that you could really pinpoint where the problem was and that made it much easier to target policing actions. But it wasn't just a sort of top-down regulatory approach. There was also, I think, a recognition um, you know, uh, on many market actors that there's plenty of land that's already cleared that you could expand soy over. Um, there was also an understanding, I think, that you know, there was consumer resistance to deforestation because the soy that was and beef that was being produced, significant amounts of that were exported to Europe. And there was also, I think, a feeling among the big global traders that, were, that had a presence there that they had reputational risk here as well. Um, so it was a kind of perfect storm, a sort of coming together of both the sort of public and private initiatives that, that drove the uh, deforestation levels down. It's worth saying by how much. I mean, you know, 15 years ago, it was about 30,000 square kilometers a year. Right now, it bumps along between five and 8,000 kilometers. So very, very significant reduction. That is a big difference. Yeah. Um, so how is that effort working on the savanna areas? Yeah, well, it's sort of like a catch-22 because um, the the way the geography of Brazil is is you have the forests in the north and the central Brazil you have the, you have the grasslands of the of the Cerrado. Um, from our standpoint, as a conservation organization, it's not a win if we're successful in reducing deforestation in the Amazon, but all that does is displace that pressure for, for habitat conversion into the grasslands of the Sahado. Um, that has actually not happened. Um, the, you know, the sort of dynamics are, 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 are slightly different in, in, in the different regions. Um, right now, we're in a situation where um, for the last three years, uh, you know, habitat conversion levels in the Sahado have been very low. Um, they, the six or seven years before that, they, they, they were really booming. Um, a lot of the Sahada was converted, and you know, right now we're at a, in a situation where we have about half of the Sahada in native vegetation. The other half is is under agriculture or, or, or pasture. There's a very large amount of pasture um, that's not particularly productive, probably about 20 million hectares in total, um, that you could expand cropland over. So at least in theory, you can see a sort of future um, sweet spot where you have uh, cropland expanding over pasture and pasture intensifying, um, that would make a lot of economic sense. Um, of course, there's many a slip between cup and lip, and you can see that in theory, but actually uh, having that sort of land use pattern develop is, is a complicated thing. But that's what we're working towards there. Some of the areas that have been in agriculture the longest, um, do, they, do they suffer from soil degradation, loss of fertility? possibly partly because of the heavy rainfall? Well, I mean, you know, that's a hard question to answer because if you pull out globally um, and just sort of, you know, do a quick sort of, um, you know, look around the world, um, there are places that have had agriculture in place literally for millennia 
um, with reasonable soil quality being maintained throughout that period. So there's, you know, there's parts of Southeast Asia, for example, that you know you've got these sort of smallholder um, peasant um, farming systems that use uh, they're very intensive. They use they use manure a lot, um, and they have maintained really you know really excellent soil quality. Um, that's because on the whole they they're fairly stable uh, systems and they're in fairly stable market context. What's destabilizing for soil um, is when you have a sudden expansion of demand and an intensification of production that the you know, the natural ecosystem of the soil in that particular area can't support. Um, and there's many places around the world where you can point to that kind of uh, dynamic having happened, having happened as well. There's no hard and fast rule, I think. It's just, uh, you know, you can certainly generate, you know, what the basic principles of good soil management are and apply them pretty much anywhere. And it's going to improve your situation if you're in one of those stress systems. Yeah. Do Is there uh a movement to try to use regenerative agriculture techniques like no-till yeah. and yeah i mean no-till cover cropping there's there's a whole range of systems um i think whatever agricultural system you're in whether it's a, a sort of system that's typical of like the u.s or the brazilian corn and soy belt you know very high productivity industrial agriculture or a, a smallholder system like the, you could find in like africa or, or southeast asia um all of you know it Good soil management is a basic principle of success in all of those different agricultural systems. That's why it's really strategic for us to focus on it because it doesn't really matter what scale of agriculture you're in. Um, you know, basic soil management is going to be going to be important to you. So it's a sort of an across the board um, strategy for us. Okay, let's step back up to the global level yeah. that you're kind of focused on. Um, when when you look at agriculture as a whole internationally what do you see with regard to greenhouse gas emissions that's a a trickier thing to measure at the local level right yeah well i mean we know a lot about um what the patterns of greenhouse gas emissions around agriculture are um and i think we can make some pretty secure assumptions um moving forward um based around you know what we know about population growth rates and also um consumption patterns of consumption um in, in developing countries as they transition um, from developing status to developed. And I think China is a really good example of what you can expect. You know, you can ex- a country that a generation ago was was poor. I mean, I have colleagues in China who talk to me about their siblings who, you know, they remember famine conditions when they were children. Um, and China today is a totally transformed country. Um, much higher levels of income, much higher levels of protein consumption, um, protein demand rather. Uh, So we can expect a world where hundreds of millions of people are transitioning into a middle-class lifestyle with all of the sort of demand patterns that involve. So for agriculture, I think the really big question for on a climate change standpoint is you're going to have a big increase uh, in demand for protein um methane uh, and you know as, as as we know enteric fermentation is the you know, second biggest source of greenhouse gases after land conversion um so if you have a 
the huge increase in protein demand that we expect, um, that's got implications for um, you know the agriculture could increase overall its you know, in absolute terms its contribution to green you know, to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that's a really important problem for the industry to be thinking about. There's solutions to it. Um, there's you know, different range, you know, v- very large range of potential solutions to it. Um, but it's really important that people understand, I think, within the industry that, you know, the development pattern that we're on, um, which we have to manage to, I don't think it's possible to, you know, to do more than bend the curve of of development at the margins. It's very difficult to go to countries like China and Brazil and say, no, you sh- can't be achieving the same levels of consumption and development of the, of, of the US and Western Europe. That's not going to happen. Um, but I think it's, you know, with uh, a combination of wider understanding within the agriculture industry of how critical this is um, and also science and ingenuity which has always been really important in agricultural history as well um, you know I'm reasonably optimistic that we can you know that we can make progress can you drill down on a couple of the tools that we might put into place there uh, there's a lot of things around um, soil management that you can do that reduces um, you know so, uh, that reduces carbon emissions. There's a lot of work that you can do um, around reducing the emissions intensity of livestock production. We're going to be diving into, I think, some of those, some of that work during this conference. Um, there's also a lot that you can do around um, managing um, fertilizer, which is a, an important um, you know, contributor here as well. Um, but most critically of all, I think we can think about ways that we can intensify agriculture without uh, expanding its geography footprint into natural habitat because if you look at the numbers that's the single biggest contributor of uh, you know, of agriculture to uh, greenhouse gas emissions it's the expansion of the geographical footprint of agriculture um, if food demand increases by 70 or 100 percent or whatever it is we know it's going to be a big number there is no way that we can do that by expanding 70 or 100 percent the area that we farm or the area that we graze we absolutely have to intensify our production systems but do that in a way that doesn't uh, increase the environmental impact of those systems. Um, it's hard, um, but I think you know there's some places around the world that you can point to where you know this is happening to a significant extent already. What do you sense as kind of the the mood in the room, sort of? You know, when when you talk to large agribusiness companies and you talk to governments, do you think they're uh, excited about? digging into this challenge or are they hopeful or optimistic or pessimistic? That's a hard question to answer because I think it depends on on who you're talking to. If I could make some very dangerous generalizations, um, sure. <laughs> I'd say that yeah, I think the CEO level of of, of ag companies and agri- the agribusiness sector they get how climate change is is important. Um, they faced with two problems. One is their obligation is to their shareholders, um, and a lot of the short term impact of what you need to do to address climate change is not necessarily going to be you know, positive for your bottom line. Um, so there's that tension between the short term sort of time horizon that many companies have to manage to, um, and the sort of medium to long term nature of the impacts of climate change. And the other 
problem I think that the private sector often faces is that you have, uh, you know, it's a very, the world food system and the agribusiness companies within it are very large and complicated organizations. And it's like trying to change, you know, trying to, the proverbial um, changing the direction of a super tanker. It's a difficult thing to do and it, it takes time and, you know, one has to be patient about it. But at the same time, there's a limit to the patience that we can have here given the urgency of some of the problems that we face. In governments, I think it really there's much more much greater variety um, compared to um, market actors and how they look at climate change and the urgency that they feel. Um, I think you know the European governments um, for, to take one example feel the urgency of climate change a great deal and that's because they're reflecting I think the greater level of concern about that among European electorates you don't see that same level of concern um, in uh, developing countries for obvious reasons they you know they have very pressing social and economic issues that they have to address and they regard those as more politically important in the short term than the longer term issues that that, that swirl around climate change I completely get why you know where, where they're coming from on that, um, but that's basically the the picture of, of of where we are. Well, let's talk about a couple of specific governments. Maybe um, the the president in Brazil has just rolled back a lot of environmental regulations there. Do you are you afraid that that might undermine a lot of the progress that you've made? Well, I mean, I'd broaden it out because I think, you know, the Brazil and the United States are a really interesting compare and contrast right now. There's also in the US been the, a, a rollback of a, of a lot of environmental um, regulations. Um, and I think there's some similarities, I think, between the, the sort of, you know, the view of the world that both, you know, President Trump and President Bolsonaro have. Um, I think what you find, what you will find in Brazil, and I think what we've seen in the US, um, is that it's the president can try and do things and, and, and set a certain tone. Um, but Brazil and the US both have quite strong institutions. Um, you will, I think, see a lot of the things that, um, that President Bolsonaro was attempting to do end up in court in the same way as you know, things in the US are ending up in court. Um, Brazil has a st- very strong judicial system. Um, you know, it'll take a while for things to uh, work themselves out. I know there's a lot of coverage about all the you know, pre- uh, media coverage about all of the things that could happen and might happen. Um, I suspect that what actually will happen is is, is actually a lot less um, than uh, some people are, are, are thinking um, because those institutions are going to come into play and I think to a significant extent moderate uh, what President Bolsonaro is, is, is thinking about doing. And I think you're probably going to see the same, have seen the same dynamic in the US as well. Tell me a little bit about this online tool that you've created for mapping out um, soybean production in Brazil. Sure. Um, as I've referred to, um, you know, a critical question for uh, sustainable, you know, the long-term sustainability of agriculture in, in the Sahara is encouraging um, soy and other grains and oil seeds to expand over land that's already been cleared instead of directly into native habitat. So, Companies and other market actors 
they might want to do that, but they face the challenge of, well, where can I, you know, where would be, where would it be most economic for me to do that? Um, that's partly a question of, you know, what your environmental conditions are, what your topography is, what your um, you know, precipitation regime is, what your soil conditions are like. Um, but it's also a question of economics, like what, what are your transport costs going to be like? What's the yield history of this particular area? What yields can I expect? How much fertilizer am I going to need? All those kind of questions. So what Agrodial does, um, and I should emphasize that the Nature Conservancy put the system together, but the parameters of the system and what it's meant to do was completely designed by the soy traders and the financial institutions in Brazil that you know that have a direct interest in this and can actually really drive what happens. Um, all we did was execute what they what they said they needed. Um, so Agrodial is a geo spatial planning tool. Um, it's web-based, it's free um, for anyone who wants to use it. Um, it allows you to zoom in on particular regions within the Sahara. It covers the whole of the Sahara. It's also, by the way, being expanded to the uh, Chaco in um, Argentina and Paraguay. Um, and it allows you to, it layers different categories of information, environmental, social, economic, um, and it allows the user to model different potential scenarios. So if I put a silo here, or if I built a, a, a road spur over there or a railway in here, um, you know, would that make, how can I, how can I do that in a way that minimizes uh, soy expansion into native habitat and maximizes um, expansion over land that's already been cleared? And it's, it, it's a tool that allows market actors to be able to play with different scenarios and and, inf and have that influence where they site their infrastructure in a way that channels uh, cropland expansion over cleared land rather than into over pasture usually rather than into native vegetation. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about resiliency. Yeah, you mentioned that as one as one of your global focuses. Yeah. Well, the first thing to say about resilience is it's kind of difficult to define. Scientists tie themselves up in knots trying to define it and map it. But you can sort of recognize it when you see it. So it's like good art. Difficult to define, but easy to see when you're walking around the landscape. Um, I'd say there's two really important points to make. One is that you, you can make all agricultural systems, whatever scale they are, more resilient. Um, you often hear debates about, well, this particular system is more resilient than that particular system. Well, that might be true, but that doesn't mean that you can't increase the resilience of all systems. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the other thing uh, I think that's really important to, to understand is that um, you are, to, in, in order to have, um, you know, in order to increase the resilience of your system, um, it's going to make sense for you to be sharing your agricultural landscape at least a little bit with, ne with natural habitat, um, because natural habitat plays a, a huge role um, in buffering the environmental impacts of, of, of agriculture. And that's true even in a largely converted landscape like the US Corn Belt, for example. So provided you've got, um, you know, 
patches of native vegetation buffering your 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 field edges, um, provided you're doing um, things like cover cropping and you know trying to sort of do what you can to increase the the variety of the agricultural system that you're using, intercropping whatever it is, um, you know, you're going to be more resilient than you would be if you weren't doing it. Now, if you're in a smallholder system in Africa, say, or, or Southeast Asia, or or, or China. Um, you're going to be um, probably more resilient in the sense that you've got lots lots of different crops instead of just like one or two, often in a really small area. Um, but at the same time, you know, you've got, um, you know, growing, you know, bigger population growth, you've got, you know, urgent demands for production, and that can also undermine the resilience of your system because you're over-intensifying, basically. Um, so you, the the strategies that you would use in different settings vary depending on the nature of the system. Um, but, you know, in general, don't keep all your eggs in one basket, diversify as much as you can, make sure you've got some native habitat around to be buffering the impacts of what you're doing. Um, and I think, you know, the it's easy to talk about in the abstract. Um, it's often good to be citing some concrete examples. So my favorite example um, is actually what on the surface looks like one of the most vulnerable, um, politically unstable parts of the world for farmers. And that's um, the sort of Sahel, that sort of, you know, the the area just south of the Sahara Desert as it transitions into um, sort of, you know, West Africa. Um, and in the last 10, 15 years, in specifically in Mali and Niger, countries which have had all sorts of political problems, um, you've had this extremely impressive uh, agroforestry movement um, where uh, uh, lots of small, you know, thousands and thousands of small farmers have implemented a system called um, farmer, it's known in the trade as farmer managed natural regeneration. Um, it involves using a lot of um, different tree species um, to intersperse with their cropping um, and you know, use some of the tree species have direct economic use, some of them don't, but they all have an important role uh, in helping to shield cropping uh, from uh, the effects of drought um, and increasing yields. Um, so you look satellite photos of that part of the world, compare them what they are, you know, compare them today with what that part of the world looked like 20 years ago. It's much greener today. Um, so there are examples of success stories. It's not just a, a, a story of, of like, what a terrible problem. It's really difficult to do anything about it. Yeah. Well, that's really exciting that they're seeing increased yield from that practice. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, do you know if there are upfront costs that they have before they can switch to a practice like that? And how can we overcome those upfront costs? There are upfront costs. Um, the upfront up costs are quite modest. Um, it's a fairly low tech solution compared to you know what you might be using in other parts of the world. Um, those costs uh, have been funded by a combination of um, you know, governments getting behind it, uh, uh, research, agricultural research institutes and extension agents getting behind it. So a lot of the uh, experimentation on what particular species would be good, that was done within um, CGIAR network, which is a UN-funded uh, you know, network of agricultural research institutes. Um, a lot of non-governmental organizations also 
um, played a really important role um, in um, in bankrolling some some of the costs. So lots of different people got involved. Um, the critical thing I think is that this was a low tech solution. That the there were costs, but they weren't crippling. Um, and even within the sort of context of uh, the sort of fairly poor hard scrabble farming that most of these um, villagers were in, um, it was realistic and with appropriate um, external help, they were able to they were able to scale it up to the level that it's reached today. I imagine the Nature Conservancy works to kind of try to spread practices like that. Yeah, the funnily world. enough, we can't claim any credit here because <laughs> um, we don't, actually don't have a program in, in West Africa. Our programs okay. are in East Africa, um, in Africa. But um, yeah, we, that's, it's, uh, it's, it's very much the type of thing that, that we, try to, we try to encourage, building resiliency. Um, but also when we're looking at it, you know, not just trying to import expensive external solutions that just aren't a realistic proposition for the you know, the realities on the ground in the places that, you know, we're trying to influence. A similar kind of practice, I think, is silvopasture, where you, where you mix forests and livestock yeah. pasture. And um, where do you see that taking off in parts of the world? Yeah, I mean, we, um, we actually, that is one of the areas we work very directly with in Colombia um, and also in um, Argentina. Um, you do see it taking off, yeah, um, and it's uh, I think a really um, it's really impressive to see some of the uh, some of the uh, some of the transformations it's been able to cause on the ground. I mean, I would in- introduce one note of caution, which I think is not just with agrosilvo pastoral systems, but across the board, is that um, they are. Sometimes the impacts are really spectacular, especially in places that have been, you know, badly degraded. Um, it's extraordinary how quickly areas can come back when they're well managed, and these systems are really good at doing that. Um, it's all agriculture is always about context. Um, it's the most contextual thing that there is, and what works in one valley might not work in the next valley along. Um, so it's important not to get too evangelical and oversell any individual strategy. And I think sometimes that happens with uh, agro silvo uh, pastoral systems. Um, people try and say it's a sort of you know a silver bullet when in fact we're in a world where it's silver buckshot. Um, I think it's really it's really useful. Um, we work with it directly. Um, we find, it, especially in Colombia um, and Argentina, it's 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 really um, made a huge contribution. Um, but it's one one of lots of solutions that we need to be thinking about and implementing. Well, it's exciting that there are some um, very low-tech solutions like this that are helping farmers put carbon back into the soil and sure. into the forest. Yeah, um, although I would say also I'm not knocking for the high-tech solutions either because I think one of the really interesting things about American agriculture right now is that you look at the digital technologies that are coming out and the extraordinary um, way that they can transform how we manage water, for example, um, how we're able to target inputs in a really efficient way um, so that we can, for example, know exactly when we ought to be applying fertilizer, exactly where, um, and that kind of input efficiency is also really important in being able to reduce the environmental impact of agriculture while increasing yields. So I think one of the really fascinating questions that we'll be working out over the next 10 or 20 years is 
the US in particular, it's always been this engine of technological innovation. It's always led the way um, in thinking about how you can, you know, the appliance of science. Um, and it's really had an extraordinary impact on the productivity of American agriculture. Now, if we could get those even a fraction of those productivity gains in places like Africa and, and, and Southeast Asia, we'd be well on the way to solving our, our you know, the problems that the world food system faces. So one of the great challenges, I think, is how can we translate those technologies and, and bring the promise that digital agriculture offers to very different settings where you have farmers who are on the whole poor, on the whole can't afford the level of investment that American farmers can to access these technologies, and on the whole don't have much of a digital education. So there's, you know, these technologies are complicated, and you know, a farmer who doesn't have much education is going to have trouble applying them. You don't have in Kenya or Tanzania the sort of ecosystem of service providers that you have in the U.S., but when you think about the need to increase the productivity of agriculture while minimizing its environmental impacts, these technologies can be incredibly transformative. Um, how you can get them working at scale in smallholder farmer farming contexts where you have you know, poor farmers and you know, not so much capital to invest, that I think is one of the great unanswered questions of the next generation. And if we answer it, I think we'll be a long way towards cracking the kind of questions that we've been discussing today. That's very exciting. And I like your concept of silver buckshot. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's not my phrase, by the way. Okay. Um, I have to acknowledge John Foley, who's the California president of the California Association of, uh, of Science, who came up with that. Well, thank you very much, David. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ag Future podcast presented by Alltech. For show notes and more episodes, visit alltech.com forward slash agfuture.